Welcome to TechTastic, the podcast that explores the cutting-edge world of technology and its impact on society. New breakthroughs and developments are revolutionizing the world around us, presenting exciting opportunities as well as complex challenges. We'll explore the big ideas and key players driving these transformations as we seek to understand the implications of these advancements for our lives, our communities, and our planet. Join us on this journey of discovery and exploration as we navigate the fascinating and ever-evolving world of technology. This is TechTastic. So I'm going to introduce uh, somebody I got to know fairly well in a brief period of time, uh, Brian Glick, who is the CEO of Chain.io. We met when I was at TradeLens and we partnered with Chain.io to help build out our solution. Brian, can you tell everybody about yourself? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my background, I'm an insider disruptor in the industry. been doing supply chain tech since uh, about a week after I was able to go drink after work, which is a very important part of being in supply chain, uh, and uh, especially back then. And, yeah. um, you know, been helped build some of the early supply chain uh, visibility and optimization platforms in the early 2000s that really uh, focused very heavily on uh, the China inbound to the US market with wearing apparel and retail and very, very complicated issues that had to do with how to use the internet to get information from thousands of vendors who are not as organized this let's say automotive uh and had a company in the customs uh, technology space for a few years and turned that eventually into chain io which is where i saw about seven years ago the explosion of SaaS creating a problem in this industry that where integration was always based on how do we connect two big systems together and suddenly everyone was going to have 200 systems which means you need a network in the middle instead of just a piece of software so that's what we do we make uh, data move around the supply chain it's the, it's the critical missing piece in supply chain you know the the metaphor is something what like you're only as strong as your weakest link and i used to joke that supply chains are just nothing but broken links and what chain io does is is really welds those back together in a great way i thought it was a brilliant solution well thank you yeah so what i want to talk about though is supply chains have gone through a fairly rapid set of major disruptions most recently we we all know about covid and what that did to global supply chains and there that definitely increased the velocity of adoption of more resilient technologies. But, you know, this is still an industry that largely acts like 1640. But now we've got AI as of November. So it's been like six months now we've been uh, faced with AI. And I think that this, like I said, this is an industry that's fairly slow moving. It's very conservative. It's heavily asset based. So there's a lot of like risk avoidance. However, this has the, this is the first major disruption that has the potential to drive down costs. And it's also a very cost conscious industry. Uh, Brian, how do you think that AI is going to impact the supply chain? So before I answer that question, I think the any question about new technology in any industry, but especially in a relatively slow moving one, has to be aligned to where that technology is in the hype cycle. Uh, and the, the Gartner hype cycle is something everybody can Google if you've never heard of it. But essentially, early days, the, any new technology is assumed it's going to fix everything that ever happened and every problem. And in six months, we're all just going to be sitting 
sitting on beaches uh, drinking Mai Tais. And uh, <laughs> then about six months after that, it's the worst technology that ever happened and it doesn't fix anything. And then about two years after that, you go, oh, you know what? This has some really interesting use cases that have real ROIs and you find real problems that's going to solve. And so chat GPT, large language models, AI in general, or whatever we're calling AI this week, uh, is definitely on the upswing of that hype cycle. Uh, so that's the cautionary piece that everything you're hearing right now. Um, in that context, what I will say as, as sort of a pragmatist is there is a lot of work that is done by people in supply chain that seems like it is uh, thought work and is really just applying kind of fuzzy algorithms to things like my carrier called me and said, this is going to be late. And you go, okay, I have to do something about that. Well, your options are really just two or three things and you do them pretty repetitively. And, you know, I'm going to either, you know, expedite the delivery, maybe get a team driver, maybe put it on the rail, maybe, or maybe I have to call a customer and tell them that it's going to be late and ask them what they want to do. And there are kind of a lot of different variables that go into that. And it's hard to write a computer program to solve for that. But what AI probably can do is get you to the point where it's 75% right, 75% of the time. Uh, and that's probably good enough for a lot of small decisions that happen. And I think that that's where it's going to have a lot of value in in those areas where it is not paper mission critical activities where you really can't afford to have a 1% mistake. It's interesting because as you're saying that, I was thinking through the scenario at Wayfair in our logistics group with the ocean freight portion in particular. And one of the things that we had to deal with is in those roles where they're dealing with the, the movement of the containers and doing the ordering and like dealing with all the you know things that can go wrong, there's fairly high turnover. And it's not that they're leaving the industry or they're even leaving the company. It's that they're they're moving from that functional role rapidly into other functions that are higher value uh, to the organization and therefore higher pay. And that tends to be the like reaction to the problem. The people that are just sitting there and doing the rote, hey, just order the container and get the movement book, not a lot of value. That's something that's necessary, but can easily be automated, right? But when something goes wrong, you need that troubleshooter that understands you know, what you can do and how it's done. They're higher value. And I think that is that AI is going to eliminate a lot of that functional role and push people into the dealing with the 30% of the time when it didn't go right. The, the interesting part is that if you look at this over the course of decades, that has already happened repeatedly. My first day on the job, the first person I met at Customs Worker was the runner who ran the paperwork to customs, right? That yeah. job doesn't exist anymore, right? That was the most automatable job. We just had to send the data electronic customs, right? And then there were a room full of entry clerks who just keyed, you know, people, there were people whose job just was to open the mail and prepare the file. Well, they got eliminated by email, right? Because suddenly we just got a PDF. And then you've got the people who did the typing and in different parts of supply chain, those people have been eliminated or, you know, sort of machine learning based advanced OCR tools are making those jobs go away. So it, it's really a continuity. And I think what's actually interesting to me is people think about that sort of customer facing job as the next one in pipe. But in a lot of these scenarios, I actually think the next job in the pipe is actually in the procurement and the actually some of the more senior what look like strategy jobs, yeah. like how do I run an ocean bid is not as complicated as a lot of people who run ocean bids would like it. It, it seems sometimes, <laughs> right? And a lot of the rote pieces of going back and telling the vet, the supplier four times that their price
price is too high, that's where large language models probably can just respond to that email for you and say, hey, look, I'm going to tell them four times that it's too high. <laughs> just Yeah, do the negotiating go, for me. To go do yeah. that. Go do some of that base level negotiating or at least direct me towards it and track it for me. The other thing that that creates, and we saw this in the custom side of the business, was as we got more automation, the type of person we had to hire became very different because the type of person who keys a shipment or issues a purchase order is very different than the kind of person you want to hire to audit the work that a computer did, right? Because that person has to have a much deeper eye for finding mistakes. And we're actually seeing that inside of Chain.io right now, as we've started using AI-based code generation tools that will sort of sit next to your developers and suggest the code to write. And sometimes that code, like a lot of times that code just wrote boilerplate things really, really well, but it'll have one little mistake in it. And you have to have an eye that it just generated a hundred lines of code for you. And one of them just had a little tiny error in it that you would have never made if you were writing it. That's a very different skill set than writing it in the first place. That's and we're going to see a lot more people who have to have a lot more eye for like doing QA work on what the machine did versus generating the content themselves. Now, that's a very interesting point. And I actually see it on both sides of the development cycle. Mm -hmm. It's going to be very useful for the architect and even the product owners, because, you know, you're moving towards a no code world effectively where you're using AI to do a lot of that. But you better understand how the logic's going to flow through it or you're not going to be successful with it. And then to your point, on the other end, the catching the detail uh, in the moment. And those are two different people. Mm -hmm. the, the architect's looking for the big boxes and the overall logical structure. And that detailed individual is, you know, deep understanding, you know, hey, that switch just got flipped and it's going to break everything. That's two different yeah. profiles. Yeah, it is. And then there's another thing that it kind of in that space, that's going to be really interesting for logistics service providers and for people in customer service roles, which is that one of the early criticisms of ChatGPT has been it is highly confident even when it is wrong, right? Right. That the model is tuned to always give you an answer to your question. And as we apply these to more complex business props, people who build these models for business are going to need to accept that they have to build the models in ways that when there is low certainty, it doesn't give you the answer. Because in a if you're going to automate 250,000, 300 purchase orders or shipments or, or vendor audits or what have you, you, you maybe think of it when you think about those people who come into the organization and move to the next job quickly. The worst people you hire are the people who are ignorant and confident. Yes. Right. And that is exactly what <laughs> ignorant and large confident. learning models are. They are highly ignorant of context and highly confident in their answers. And that is the worst employee profile. I want either somebody who knows that they're a novice and knows when to ask for help or knows everything. This perception, which is fine when I'm like, what's the best place to visit in Miami and help me write an itinerary for my vacation? Like the consequences there that I go to a crappy restaurant, build my forced labor compliance program for me, <laughs> right? Like I don't want somebody who's ignorant and confident doing that. I love, and I love the ignorant and confident statement because you're right. And, and what we're talking about with a lot of the AI hype right now is, well, it, you know, here's all the decisions it can make for you. And most people are shy to put it in a high risk situation. And so your point though, about the, the business side of AI and effectively displaying the management decision that needs to be made, the person that has the authority and responsibility of taking the risk and describing the risk profile. Here's the probability this will occur. This seems like the best option, but here are the other four options. Here's the risk of making that decision. It would be very 
good because that's actually what I look for in my own teams is, hey, I'm, I'm giving you as much information as I can, but ultimately on some of these things, the risk profile is too high. It's my responsibility to make that decision so you don't have to take that risk on yourself. Can you just you know, help me understand what the options are and what you see going wrong and what that would look like? That would be a very interesting tool. Yeah, and, and we've actually had this conversation with the team over at Altana quite a bit who's doing AI-based risk targeting information, right? About using the data that they calculate to surface a confidence score versus surfacing an answer. And that if you could put that answer and that confidence score together, that is often more valuable. And it's what consumer grade tools don't want to do because it makes for a less pleasant user experience. If you know, I type something in the chat GPT and it says, I'm 38% sure that this is the right answer to your question. That's valuable, but it's not a great consumer experience. Like they'd rather just tell you the answer and not tell you that it's 38% confident because you're impressed and you don't go do the second level research anyway. So they get away with it. That's not appropriate in a lot of comps. Every company needs to decide where they want to turn that confidence dial, right? If you're in a, lo a high volume, low risk environment, you think about a lot of large companies who will say, look, if I have to take a $30 million clients penalty every five years to move $30 billion worth of product through my supply chain, that's fine. But that's not okay if you're a pharma company or if you're putting in safety equipment for, you know, for automotive. So everyone has a different place where they want that dial turned and it needs to be a transparent dial. Uh, you've actually sharpened the point on something that I've been whittling on on my own. And it, it does come down to that business use case. And one of the things that I was concerned about, for example, was there's a lot of roles that are going to be eliminated by this type of thing eventually. Uh, but it's all the same types of roles that have always been at risk of automation. It was just that our automation cycle itself was so slow. Is it You had to go buy, a, buy. you had to hire a bunch of software engineers, you had to implement technology. And that cycle that of uh, implementing the technology has just been on churn for decades because new things come out, those new things are theoretically cheaper to operate or more powerful or whatever. And so one cycle ended, the new one cycle starts and you just keep doing it over and over. Very little forward progress is made in that automation piece. But now we have tools that make automation rapid. You, you can have one engineer doing the job of 10, for example, right? So I, I was looking at it now going, maybe this is the piece that finally gives software the ability to deliver on some of the promise that's always been there, but that exposes a whole different set of risks. And those are on those decisions on when it's appropriate to do and when it's not appropriate to do and all that fun stuff. So I, I kept going back and forth in my mind on the, the question of, well, who ultimately makes a decision on when to automate and what not to automate? Or uh, how do you inject those decision gates that are the only thing in process that I think are very useful, which is to say like, you know, you have this much autonomy and authority, but once you cross this critical threshold, it has to be escalated up. And so I've been trying to, in my own head, it's just been blowing around as I've tried to conceive of what that process that becomes the automation system has to look like. So I want to pick at one thing you just said, and maybe as a parting thought here, this is my fourth decade in, in systems and IT. And what I have seen repeatedly is every new technology is supposed to eliminate jobs as an aggregate count, not necessarily a particular job, but like, oh my God, we're going to need less people. And what we end up with every single time is the demand for more efficiency or the demand where now we can move more volume, that the actual demand is more elastic than the supply. So every time we get more efficient, we increase the amount of business we do. We don't decrease the amount of work we do. You look at our economy and how fast products move through the economy. We didn't say, hey, let's take the speed that we sell 
sell things in 1980 and just do that cheaper. We said, no, we're going to make more products available to more people because we're going to use that efficiency to increase the demand side. So I don't ever think, I'm not one of these people that envisions a future where all of us kind of wander around in the same outfits and don't have jobs and, you know, just listen to opera all day. I envision the future where the specific jobs change, right? Like nobody shovels coal in trains anymore, but there's now people who manage electronic safety systems for, it's probably a bad example given recent news, but manage the electronic safety systems for the switching on trains, right? That job didn't exist <laughs> at the same time as the coal person. Right. So the jobs will shift, but the demand for more efficiency and demand for more business and the pace in the, the economy always seems to increase. So I don't think we ever talk about job reduction. I think we talk about retrenching people into other jobs. And yeah, unfortunately, it, it, it's not always the same person. Right. But right. <laughs> this, this is a conversation I had with somebody else uh, not that long ago on the podcast. And I, I always have to get it back to the, the localized job. If you look mm -hmm. at the individual doing a specific function, some of those are definitely going to be eliminated. Yes. Right. But the need for a human doesn't go away. They just have to, to your point, it's in a different role doing a different job. There's, there's no more runners at customs brokers, but there are a heck of a lot more, you know, uh, people analyzing best usage of free trade agreements than there used to be, right? The job is different and it's not the same person. And actually, I think that you see this even in the, the level of education that's expected in mm -hmm. like the U.S. economy. Uh, when I was coming up, it, you know, I don't remember what the numbers were, but let's say it was like 10% of the U.S. workforce had a bachelor's degree. And now uh, for most roles, that's like an entry level requirement. So there's a lot larger fraction of the U.S. workforce that has it than there used to be. And that just keeps going up. Uh, what's interesting with some of these tools is I, I think logic becomes more important, understanding risk and all that becomes more important, but not necessarily, at least uh, Brian, you and I are fairly similar in age. Uh, for us, coding and the ability to sit down and write software was almost the skill you had to have uh, in a lot of roles. I mean, maybe it's biased because I'm in technology this whole time, but like if you really wanted to be successful, even as an entrepreneur, you better learn how to code. And that's the thing that's changing um, more than anything for me that I think is a positive because it lowers the barrier of entry for innovation to people that can actually just think through a complex problem and come up solution. You, you don't, you may not need to learn, know how to write code in the future, but I will tell you the thing that is not going to go out of style is the ability to think like a coder, to think about systems and use cases and processes and edge cases and how to resolve unexpected problems in business systems is AI is further away from that than they are from an actual self-driving car. Like, <laughs> like it is the the difference between what a what a pattern recognition thing that guesses the next plays a game of guess the next word in your sentence versus actually being able to think through like what's really going to happen three years from now with all the change management in my organization if I purchase a new TMS. That is a different kind of question, and that is very much the same thinking process that learning to code teaches you, which is how to deal with horrible inputs and horrible outputs and lots of con well-constructed logical thoughts in between. If there's any, the, the, knowing how to code has actually made me a better business person. Uh, I'm an average coder, but I know how to apply that larger problems than just the things you write into uh, a coding language. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I, I've actually, I don't know if you and I have ever had the conversation on the difference between a coder and an engineer. Oh yeah. yeah. We, talk about, we, we talk about that all the time at Chain.io that my team is tired.
hired, I say, I don't pay you for your fingers. I pay you for your brain. <laughs> exactly. Right. You're yeah. not here to type. <laughs> so, we can we can get anybody to type. I was judged on lines of code. I'm that old, but <laughs> yeah, you got paid <laughs> by the not bond. the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's so, a terrible yeah. way. When you were back in the pre, even before uh, package software, when it was just somebody had some mainframe system running and you were just there to update it and uh, even just keep it running, uh, getting paid by the bot was kind of the normal thing. And God, we've come such a long way from that. <laughs> yes. And how glorious that is. All right. Well, this, this has actually gone in a different direction than I expected, which is always my favorite types of conversation when they evolve and, and move around. So applying that back into the industry that you're kind of the be hopeful to become the backbone of, uh, you don't think that it's going to move terribly fast on this automation piece, I'm guessing, based on what you're saying. I think road automation is already moved fast. We're seeing more and more of like the document extraction technology and the kind of like typing, letting a computer type faster. Uh, what I what I don't think is going to move incredibly fast is the replacement of the thought work because I think that the problems in supply chain, and it's the same reason that outside uh, software disruptors have struggled in this industry, is that the the nuance of the most of the problems has to do with aligning people who work for many organizations and can't be told what to do and don't speak the same languages either culturally or linguistically. And that computers right now have the illusion of being able to do all of this, but it's really just guesswork. Uh, and I don't think the tech is anywhere near, you know, solving the real hard problems. I think, you know, like if I'm looking at M&A, I can use a lot of tech already to figure out like who are the five companies I might want to target based on their financials and, you know, apply some large language models to the to the sentiment data about those companies to kind of winnow it down. But I can't go sit down and have the, the AI can't have dinner with that CEO and figure out whether he's going to check out or buy in the day after the acquisition happens. Like there are really hard problems in supply chain and logistics that are, again, our computers look a lot smarter than they are. I guess is the best way to say it. Exactly right. Hey, Brian, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your opinions with everybody. Uh, it's been a fantastic conversation for me. Is there anything that you want to leave the audience with or anything you'd like to say? Um, no, I ran a lot on LinkedIn. So if you want to go check out uh, Chain.io over there or my personal, that's the uh, best place to hear me walk down the street and record handheld videos bitching about all this stuff all day, every day. So, <laughs> And you are a, you are a pretty prolific uh, content generator. He, uh, Brian's had me on a couple podcasts that, that I don't know if you post that on a regular basis or... We do it on, we do it on the regular. Um, oh, I had you, I guess sat in for the journal, for um, Eric, for the Journal of Commerce with you, but we also have a Chain.io podcast uh, that you can get on our website too. And that's, what's your website? Uh, Chain.io. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank our you, Brian. Our name is our address, as they say. Our name is our address. Well, thank you, Brian. I really appreciate you coming on the show. All right. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Techtastic. And as always, if you want to be on the show or you have somebody you'd like to recommend be on the show, the best way to reach us is at hammer at techtastic.tech. So long. <laughs>